0: ask nt anything podcast Welcome back to the show where you get to ask the questions of New Testament historian, pastor and former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, and brought to you in partnership with SBCK and NT Wright Online. I'm your host, Justin Briley, and this show is part of many shows we now offer from Premier Unbelievable. Today, Tom is answering questions on the Old Testament, like where should a new Christian start? Did events like Noah's flood and Jonah and the whale really happen? And why exactly did God attempt to kill Moses in Exodus 4? Uh, here's a listener in the usa who says lots of practical wisdom unapologetically theological yet never never pugnacious <laughs> try saying that with uh with your teeth in um great podcast for christian thinkers thank you very much and thanks uh, for all who leave a review of the podcast it helps others to discover the show too uh, before we leap in i want to tell you about uh, the new season of the big conversation from Premier unbelievable tom of course has been a guest on it in the past but our new season kicks off with richard dawkins and francis collins debating biology belief and covid it's an unmissable conversation uh, do go and check it out you can find links from our show page at PremierUnbelievable.com or indeed the big dot show it's got its own dedicated website links are with today's show uh, while you're there sign up to receive a free ebook on the case for god and to ask a question here on the show here come today's set of questions well we begin today with uh, the first of a couple of shows looking at the old and new testament uh obviously tom is a new testament historian primarily but he often takes your questions on the old testament as well and so uh, we've got a number of those today uh, from people like tim and Tori and naz in different parts of the world um Let's start with the, the, the first question, then, which is quite a general question from someone who's a new Christian, Tim in California. He says, my question is, if someone who has never read the Bible before asked you which books of the Old Testament they should read and in what order do you think they should read them to better understand the context of the New Testament, what would you tell them. So, yeah, what's your advice to Tim wanting to make a start in the Old Testament but not get too confused or bogged down? It's a great question. Um partly because I know,
1: I know from my own young experience but from many others that people who think, "Oh, I ought to read the Bible," They tend to start at the beginning with Genesis and Exodus, and they get bogged down halfway through Exodus because suddenly the great narrative which has carried you forward seems to disappear in two or three chapters of detailed instructions about um, how to make the tabernacle and all that sort of thing, plus a lot of other miscellaneous instructions. Where is this going? What's this all about? And then when they turn over the page and get to Leviticus, it appears even worse because these detailed regulations for sacrifice and so on aren't scratching where most modern Christians are itching, to put it bluntly. Um, So even if they make it through Numbers, which has a lot of good stories, Mm -hmm. and into Deuteronomy, which is uh, more obviously um, exciting in some ways, um, there's still a big puzzle. I would say it isn't just a question of what to read, but of how to read, because there are some passages of the Old Testament which really demand to be read very slowly and thoughtfully. And I would say that about the Psalms. In fact, I would say the Psalms Psalms are one of the key places to start, but you have to start wisely and prayerfully and take one or two Psalms a day or one or two Psalms per prayer session, which might be morning and evening, and simply to allow them to wash over you and allow yourself to to sink into them and see where they're going and what they're saying. uh, but then other bits, and certainly Genesis and Exodus would be among them. There's nothing wrong with actually reading them straight through. Don't just take a chapter every day. Why not take ten chapters at a time? Why not read the whole book? If it was a novel you were enjoying, you'd uh, read a chunk as big as the Book of Genesis. If you'd settled down one afternoon with nothing else to do to read a novel, you would read that amount. So why not take um, some of the bits of the Old Testament in great swathes? And I would say certainly genesis and exodus um but i would want to stress why the building of the tabernacle is important you need to know that Mm. because for most people in the modern western world that seems very odd but really the whole point of the story is god wants to come and dwell with his people and so read genesis and exodus to see that story unfolding but then i would say do read one and two Kings as well. Those stories about the rise of Saul, David, Solomon, and then the fall and the awful things that happen. But then the later kings with the toing and froing. Those stories are full of insight, and you get Elijah and Elijah and Elijah and, Elijah and Elisha in the middle of that. So I would say Genesis, Exodus, one Samuel and Kings, um, and of, with the Psalms going on, and also with Proverbs. I said in answer to a question on a previous podcast, there's something to be said for taking the 30 chapters of proverbs and reading one chapter a day Uh, try that for a month or two and just see what's bubbling up in your own understanding of yourself and the world and how that's all working but then at the heart of the whole thing i would say isaiah the great prophet Isaiah, obviously one of Jesus' favorite parts of the Old Testament, particularly chapters 40 to 55, but actually also 40 all the way on to 66. The first half of the book is hugely important as well, but that passage, Isaiah 40 to 66, seems to have informed and infused uh, the life of both Jesus himself and of his first followers in a way that is just quite extraordinary and goes on being fruitful today. So those are the places I would start. But again, as I say, it's like it's like different types of drink. There are some drinks which demand that you drink a whole pint all at once and others where you really want to sip it very slowly. So be wise in terms of styles of reading. Be prepared to read whole huge sections or be prepared to focus in on just a few verses and to pray them in slowly mm. and meditatively. And that may change over yeah. time
0: as to how you want to take different different sections. I, I've always found it helpful myself as well to, 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 to have a basic understanding of, of where this particular book or story or whatever fits into the bigger timeline of scripture, because that often helps oh, to place it in its context. Absolutely. And there are some great resources out there to do that. Um, many different seminaries have produced them. There's the Bible course by Andrew Wollerton that, that I've that we, we've used sure. in our church recently. Um, and of course, individual commentaries. So if you're in the New Testament, you know, we, we can highly yeah. recommend Tom's For Everyone series, but there, there is a For <laughs> Everyone uh, for the Old Testament written by John Goldingay yes. and, and others. So so th- these are yeah. all useful resources, aren't they, to, to help people on that, yes. that journey? Yes, and and it, it really does help because so many people in
1: today's world who may know a great deal about other things have only the sketchiest idea of ancient history. Uh, I remember one time, when I was leading a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and it became clear in the preliminary meetings that some of the people who were coming on this pilgrimage, even though they were quite sophisticated in their own ways, Their idea of history was this sort of big blob back there somewhere with people like, uh, I don't know, Abraham and Saladin and Jesus (laughs) and Ben-Gurion miscellaneously floating around in the back there sometime with no sense of sequence at all. So I would give them a single sheet of A4 with the basic timeline. Oh, that's when Herod was. Oh, that's when the prophets were doing this. Oh, I see, that's when they went into exile. And so even, and many Bibles actually print that sort of timeline um in in the back cover or somewhere like that and and so the timeline and the map really help um and i would encourage anyone reading the bible to keep
0: an eye on all that let's turn to another question that again this is a common kind of question that we have dealt with in different ways in previous podcasts but Tori in trenton ontario in canada is asking it this time and says um long-time listener of unbelievable and have found asking to write anything through it i'm curious as to tom's opinion on the factual basis of old testament stories like jonah and especially noah and the ark does he believe these events actually happen certainly i believe a god who is capable of creating the universe is more than capable of authoring these events but more and more today christians are looked at laughably for believing these as children's stories in light of how implausible they seem scientifically much appreciate the consideration keep up the god good work and god bless so so these these stories in particular you know The two mentioned here are often cause of contention because some people would say Jonah, for instance, fits in a different sort of genre, let's say, of of work to say the more kind of what feel possibly like more historically uh, grounded stories around the the story of Israel and so on. Uh, Obviously, Noah and the Ark comes in that first 12 chapters of Genesis where people often talk about it being almost pre, you know, proto-historical or something like that mm. you know. Um, so what, where, where, how do you divide up the kind of the, the nature of the stories and where they fall in the Old Testament Tom?
1: Yes I, I think I, I want to take a step back and say that all this emerges from the great revolution which took place in the 19th century where uh, along with all the genuine proper scientific discoveries there were also a lot of um, uh, points of view emerging from the, the philosophy, which we can call Epicureanism, which was a way of saying if there was a God or gods, they're out of the picture; they don't intervene, and the world just makes itself and does its own thing. And people used that. It wasn't just Charles Darwin; it was a lot of other people before him as well as after him. They used that philosophy as a way of saying, therefore, we can't believe any of those silly children's stories about God stepping in and doing this, or God reaching down and, and making such and such happen, um, because we we, we now know that those things just just never occur. And that was a major feature of 18th and 19th century philosophy, people like David Hume and Gibbon and so on, um, denying that the miraculous could ever happen on the basis, the a priori basis, that if there was a God, he was right out of the picture and would never dream of, quote, intervening, unquote. And that whole picture of an interventionist or non-interventionist God, that's behind these questions, and that picture is itself unhelpful. The Christian approach has always been to say that it's as we look at Jesus that we discover who God really is. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father, and, and says things like, um, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. So, knowing how God works in the world, the Early Christians say the only way we know that is by looking at Jesus and seeing what goes on there. And that really reshapes the questions away from that 19th century either or. And it's, uh, of course, on the back of the 19th century either or that many people in the 20th century have said, oh, now we're grown up. We're not uh, those primitive fundamentalists who believe in the literal truth of all this and that. The trouble is that as you read from Genesis right the way on through, there's all sorts of different levels of truth. Um, you know most devout Christians to this day do not believe that Genesis 1 and 2 is kind of a a, a video script of what happened in seven days when the world was made and then what happened with the serpent talking to Eve in the garden and so on. Most Christians, uh, the most devout Christians I know would say this is an extraordinary picture language way of saying something which can't be said in any other way like the monsters in Daniel chapter 7 um, nobody today imagines that they're the sort of sea monsters that David Attenborough would be showing on some new version of Blue Planet um, th- these, are, these are wonderful literary ways of saying something that can't easily be said any other way um, if you want to use the word mythical for that language well okay but remember that that's about the language not about whether something happened or not There are, of course, other non-biblical accounts of a great flood. The Epic of Gilgamesh, um, ancient text, um, has an account of a great flood. It looks as though there may well have been some such thing. Whether we say that the account of the flood in Genesis is, again, what a video camera would have told you, what a spy satellite would have seen, that, in a sense, is neither here nor there, um, because the book of Genesis is, is, is talking about historical historical reality but talking about it as being part of god's larger purpose of course the, the, the problem comes when then suddenly people spring it on you and say well if you don't take genesis literally maybe there was never a david maybe maybe there was never a solomon maybe there was never a moses and so on and to be sure people have asked all those questions but um, these are actually different questions and we shouldn't um we shouldn't be bullied by the sneering skeptics into saying uh, okay okay maybe none of it actually happened, because there are different layers of truth, different layers of history, and it's the task of wise Old Testament scholars still to this day, to be looking at those layers. And you mentioned John Goldingay. I mean, um, if people were to, to get hold of his big books on the Old Testament, they would see all sorts of wise wrestling with these questions mm. in a way which I think would really help. And many others, whether it's Walter Brueggemann or, or other great Old Testament scholars of our day.
0: Just to answer the specific question, for instance, and in the, the Jonah example, I mean, does it matter to you, Tom, whether a prophet called Jonah did get swallowed by a big fish and then spat up and went to the city of Nineveh to tell people to repent.
1: I I don't see any problem about somebody being swallowed by an enormous uh, sea sea monster and being spat out again. Very strange things have happened. Uh, We mentioned on a previous podcast Dale Allison's recent book on the resurrection. And it's very interesting that Dale faces down the skeptics and says, actually, when you look at the actual testimonies of people in the real world, all sorts of very strange things have actually happened. And the fact that they don't normally happen doesn't mean that they never happened. So I want to say beware of the sort of skepticism which cuts everything down and makes it rather like the sort of intellectual equivalent of of those horrible housing projects in the old Soviet Union which just look like (laughs) brutalist blocks. Um, Life is much more interesting than that. That isn't a carte blanche for every wacky idea that comes up. It's a way of saying, we've only got one source for this. Uh, we have no other means of knowing whether, you know, we don't have the historical annals of the people of Nineveh saying, once upon a time, there was this strange Hebrew prophet who came into our midst. Um, and if we did, somebody would doubt that as well. So um, when you, in ancient history, when you've only got one source, you often just have to say, well, that's a very interesting, unusual story. Maybe something like that happened. After all, there were skeptics in the ancient world as well. When the Greek historian Herodotus reports uh, the stories that people have told, he says, uh, Some people have sailed from uh, down from south of Egypt, and they say that if you go far enough south, well, the sun, instead of going round to the south of you, goes round to the north of you. And Herodotus shakes his head and says, Well, we know that sailors tell funny stories, and obviously they had a few too many drinks in the pub Um, and actually we want to say sorry Herodotus we have been south of the equator and that is precisely what happens it may have seemed crazy in your world but it was the truth and I suspect there are many many times when we want Mm. to say that and that reminds us of course that this isn't a question of ancient people who are ready to believe anything and modern people who are skeptical about everything there were skeptics in the ancient world just as there
0: are credulous people in today's Mm. world. I mean, on the subject, interestingly, of of the credibility of Old Testament events and so on. That I don't know if you've come across just very recently um, the announcement of a, of a potentially groundbreaking discovery—a cursed tablet um, discovered in an archaeological dig in Shiloh, um, where which appears to date back probably to the very earliest form of Hebrew writing we have, and the first, the earliest really? to mention Yahweh. And um, this, this—I I actually spoke just recently to Scott Stripling, who was the, the lead mm-hmm. archaeologist on this and um while it's undergoing peer review at the moment um you know it it, it's it shows that in a sense every time we do dig up the soil and we find something that it's we sometimes have have just assumed that oh well these stories were made up a long time later written down in some post-exilic time and and th- yeah, those kinds yeah. of discoveries suggest that actually sometimes we need to uh, check our assumptions because sometimes you know people yes. were more literate than we thought and that kind of thing. Oh yes, absolutely. And
1: and this is constantly happening with archaeology. I watched a program on the television the other night, um, a, a digging up um, stone circles in the Orkney Islands, and uh, it was it was extraordinary. At certain points, the the senior archaeologists were saying, "Well, this means we have to date such and such two thousand years earlier than we've always thought." and archaeologists are constantly being faced with this. All our historical conclusions are just rather like scientific ones, actually. This is the best hypothesis we've got at the moment, but at any moment, like the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, all sorts of things suddenly became, oh, not only possible, but actual. There was the actual evidence. So it always behoves us not to be too dogmatic about what we say can and can't have happened.
0: We've just time for one more, Tom. And, and th- this is a, one that I've come across several times before. Um, it's just a very odd moment in the story of Moses. Um, so we, we find it right there mm-hmm. in, uh, in, the, in the story of Exodus. And um, it's Naz in London asking this one, who says, why after commissioning Moses, dealing with Moses' objections before he goes to Pharaoh and so on, did the Lord suddenly pitch up in Exodus chapter 4, an attempt to kill Moses. I don't know if you want to read the the specific portion of scripture so so we can get our bearings and context. It's
1: it's Exodus 4 verse 24, when when Moses has just been commissioned as Naz says, and uh, then verse 24 of Exodus 4, it says on the way at a place where they spent the night, this is Moses with his wife and his son, The Lord met Moses and tried to kill him, but Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me, so he let him alone. And it was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. Now, most modern Christians reading that would just say, as Naz does, what on earth is that all about? It looks as though, and I've not done the detailed commentary surveys on this, but it looks as though this is a way of saying, Moses, you have married this girl who is the the, the daughter of the the shepherd who you met in the wilderness, and you have a son by her, but if he is going to be part of the team, part of the true Israel, then there is this thing called the Abrahamic covenant back in, in Genesis 17, when God says that you have to be circumcised and that anyone who isn't circumcised will be cut off from among his people. So Moses, are you trying to play with bo- on both sides here? Are you trying to say, well I'll go back and liberate the people but that covenant won't really matter? I suspect that's what's behind it. But it's a, it is a very strange moment in the story. Um, it, it looks as though the Lord has called Moses but is now saying, well actually if you're not prepared to, to, to be uh, fully on board with the covenant practices then game over. Um, how that works out theologically is a whole other question and I would recommend you a good commentary on Exodus to, to have a look at that. But I think that's what's going on. It's about the the, the failure to that point
0: to circumcise mm. his son. Well there, there are many similar questions that the, the Old Testament throws up at us and, and indeed in the New Testament as well and that's where we're having a helpful person who can give us some of the context and background is often so key isn't it to, <laughs> to helping us to to, to understand these stories in in our day but thank you very much for the time we've spent on some of these issues on today's podcast Tom and uh, again we can recommend uh, that series by John Golden Gay and another um, you know helpful resources from on the Old Testament if you're wanting to make a start uh, next time we're going to pick up your questions on the New Testament so do join us again for that but for now thank you very much for being with me today Tom thank you thank you Thanks for listening today. Next time we're turning to the New Testament. Tom answers listener questions like Were the Pharisees all bad? How do we reconcile the different gospel endings about where the disciples stayed after the resurrection? And is the oral tradition before the gospels were written down reliable? If you want to ask your own question, just sign up at the Premier Unbelievable newsletter at our website, premierunbelievable.com. The links with today's show. We'll even send you a free ebook if you do that. Check out all the other great shows and resources we're now offering there too, including links to our new season of the Big Conversation. It's kicked off with a great conversation between Richard Dawkins and Francis. Francis collins starting a series lots more great conversations to come you can also find links to offers and ebooks from our partners sbck and nt Wright online with today's show too so do go and explore it all the best see you next time